And it's time for the rest of you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. And guess what? Today we're wrapping up Colossians 1. There you have it. It only took us two and a half months. But I think you've grown in your understanding of this. Uh, This isn't a very important book for us to study. There's one more who's being beckoned. Are they resisting the external call? All right, and someone just arrived. Do I recognize this face? I can't see. There's a tree. Anyway, Colossians 1. Uh, although uh, we're going to focus on 28 and 29, we're gonna, I'm going to do what I did last week and keep it within its context. So uh, we're going to pick up in 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, I ask that you would help me to proclaim your testimony with simplicity this morning. Help me to know Christ and Him crucified, that your people might know Him more completely. Demonstrate your power through the Spirit that our faith would rest not on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if Stu had to do this in his class, but I think uh, when, when I had missions and evangelism, one of the things that our professor did, I think that was the course, um, <clears throat> we had to do our personal 
ministry philosophy or statement, a mission statement for our lives. And um, for me, it was this passage, particularly verses 28 and 29. And, you know, we had to present this before the whole class, and I, you know, so I had to kind of devise it. And so it was like a whole page of stuff with notes and things and all that stuff. And, you know, it's really interesting how when you move out of the seminary and you move into pastoral ministry, that, that something amazing happens. You get inundated with all of these um, flyers and messages that you hear online now, not, not so much then, but about different programs that, that, that unlock the key to the prosperity of your church, and that essentially if you're not following this way, that you're really missing something. And the way they usually describe that way is not the same way that Paul describes ministry here. And so part of what happens imperceptibly in the heart of a pastor is the temptation, I believe, to move away from a biblical understanding of ministry to one that has, that deviates in different ways, but you often don't recognize it for what it is. I'm not going to pick on Rick Warren. I'm just going to, I'm mentioning it. This is not an indictment of Rick Warren. But I remember when the 40 days of purpose was the thing. Okay, and I would drive through Winter Haven, and almost every church had their 40 days of purpose signs hanging up there and everything else. This was the thing. And do you know what happened in Winter Haven? Nothing. There was no perceptible change in the life of the church in Winter Haven. That's not Rick Warren's fault in a sense. But it, we need to have a biblical understanding of what ministry is so that we know if we're being faithful as we seek to carry out the work of the church. And so Paul is here taken up with that idea and we're continuing with that. And that's why this, the title of this sermon is that Christ is sufficient for ministry. The big idea is that Christ is the sufficient message, purpose, and means of ministry. So we're going to unpack that. And I think what I'm going to say is um, consistent with what I said when I candidated at this church, because this was the text I used. But I think it's different. I did not just repackage it, folks. I didn't just go back and hope they don't notice that I'm preaching the same sermon. I did do my work this week, okay? Because I want to be found faithful, though so often I'm not. The first part is that Christ is the supreme, sufficient message of ministry. What Paul is going to say here is completely consistent with what he says in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. In fact, I alluded to 1 Corinthians 2 when my um, prayer of illumination, where he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When Paul here is speaking of his ministry, he's not just saying, 
this is what I am doing, and you know, it's a, it's a nice idea, and you might want to follow it. What she's really doing is he's sort of setting the apostolic pattern for ministry that all churches and other ministries ought to follow. This is the real deal. I mean, he's going to allude to this throughout the letter of Colossians in a sense of, of this is what you should be doing too. Because in Colossians 3, it talks about let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, okay, so that you speak it to one another with all wisdom. What's that? That is personal ministry. That's what he's talking about even here in this passage. And so Paul's not thinking... Okay, and, and you should not think this as well. He's not, you should not think this is for Steve. This is what Steve is supposed to do. Or this is what Steve and the session are supposed to do. Yes, we are. It's what all of us who go by the name of Christ are to be doing. It's not limited to just to me vocationally or me and the elders in terms of our office. It is for all of us. And Paul alludes to that in passages like the one I just read, or quoted in part. And so the first thing that he he lays out for ministry, even lay ministry, is we proclaim him. Or for emphasis, him we proclaim. It is a rather simple statement. It is about the general content of their preaching. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see that not just the division that uh, was there, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos, I follow Christ. But also there was this focus upon baptism. Who baptized who as a function of who you follow? And it's interesting that in the midst of that, Paul says, um, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Another passage I alluded to in my prayer of illumination this morning. And so Paul did not come merely to baptize people. If he baptized them, and he did, okay, uh, that was good. But that was not the essential thing. That was not the most important thing. They needed to have the gospel laid out to them. Paul, in his, in his writings, often mentions baptism. But he always mentions baptism with a connection to Christ. It's not an isolated sort of thing. It, it, baptism itself is not the main thing. And so he talks about it, but he leads the people from baptism to Jesus. And so this morning we're going to baptize Aaron and Amanda. Okay? It's not their baptism that saves them. It is Christ. And if we're to be faithful to the promises we make to them as they come into full membership of this congregation, it means not only do we put water on them and pray over them, but that we are consistently teaching them, don't be afraid. Besides, I am not controlling how much water you get. You need to talk to him. Okay? But we need to consistently make the message of Christ, Christ crucified, his work, what he has done, what he has promised. We need to continually unpack all of that and apply it to them as they grow up as human beings. The message always has to be ultimately about Christ. 
in the church in Colossae, it had begun to veer away from Jesus. There are hints of this uh, as uh, the, the very end of the passage I read in Colossians, when we got to Colossians 2. Later on in that passage, it also says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We're going to uh, explain that, obviously, when we get to chapter 2, verse 8, uh, in a couple of weeks. But uh, the main point here is that they had begun to shift people's focus away from Christ and onto something else. And he, he explains this in terms of them being held, being held captive. They're being captured. They're being enslaved. That these things that these false teachers are coming and seem so exciting to them are actually not just complementing Jesus, they are supplanting Jesus. They distracted the people from Christ with their philosophies, with their angels, with their rituals. Living in Central Florida at the time that I did, toward the end of my time there, there was one of yet another of one of the great Lakeland revivals. And Todd Bentley, if you've never heard of him, thank God. I'm serious. This man did such harm to the church in Central Florida and beyond because they started showing this revival over the Internet live 24-7. It was insane. And part of what he did is he would talk about these revelations he received from angels. He's shifting people's focus from Christ to something else that is dangerous. What I preach here is important. And if I'm preaching the wrong thing, I'm going to take you captive. And that's not what I'm supposed to do. They are to focus on Christ, because he, as we saw earlier in Colossians 1, is the image of God. He is the one in whom the fullness of God dwelt. Therefore, he is the fullness of God's word. You will not understand the fullness of God's word unless you understand Christ. Because it all points to him in some fashion, in some way. And so Christ is the supreme, most important message that we offer. It all hangs together to him, in him. Not only is he the supreme message, but he is the sufficient message for our salvation. In other words, we need faith in him and in nothing else. If they're resting in their baptism to save them this morning, they're resting in the f- something false. There's a false security. It is Christ alone who saves. And he does it through his death and resurrection, not the waters of baptism. The waters of baptism merely point to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Scripture does three things I see very quickly. One, it points us to Christ. The, the use of the Old Testament in terms of typology, where we see someone like, as, as we heard um, in, in the reading from Luke 1 this morning, David. David, the king of Israel, functions as a type of Jesus Christ. He was a living, this is the idea of typology, 
a historical true context. David was a real person. But he functions not just so that we go, David was a great guy, but that we see some of how Christ is, is going to act on behalf of his people. And so we see that David points us to Jesus as the king of Israel and of the nations. Okay? And so David, uh, in his, in his, his life, actually God uses him to point us to what Christ is going to do. And so that's one way in which scripture points us to Jesus. Typology. That's very different from allegory. Allegory has no historical context. Typology does. Scripture also prepares us for Christ, in part by revealing our sinfulness and in part by revealing his solution to our sinfulness. Leviticus. Leviticus is largely about God's solution for the sin of the people of Israel. And we recognize from Hebrews that it was provisional. And it was actually meant to point us to the finished work of Christ. That is the blood of Christ, not the blood of bulls and lambs that cleanses us from our sin, but it is the blood of Jesus that alone can remove our guilt, our condemnation, and our shame. Scripture also presents Christ himself to us in all of his glory as the supreme and the sufficient Savior. That's the whole point of this letter we're reading. It's all about how supreme and sufficient Jesus is. And so he he always gets back to Christ because he needs to keep their focus on him. And so Christian ministry is simply about proclaiming Christ in all his fullness. And so I'm not saying the same thing about Jesus week after week. I'm giving you a fuller picture of Jesus week after week. Secondly, not only is Christ the supreme sufficient message of ministry, Christ is the supreme sufficient purpose of ministry. See, Christian ministry in some ways is quite simple, but it's not simplistic. There's also a how and a why we proclaim Christ that needs to be examined from this very passage. Paul, when he says, him we proclaim, he clarifies it first off with warning everyone. And you're going to see that everyone keeps popping up. Paul is going to repeat that, that word. Warning everyone. We need to warn people about the dangers of their actions. And sometimes we need to be warned about the dangers of our actions. If you're on Facebook, I don't know, maybe you have different friends than I do on Facebook, but there's the, there's the little meme that comes around all the time now about St. Nicholas, you know, the real the historical guy, not the guy in the red suit, you know, the one he's really based on. Okay, and there's this one story that apparently is, is more than more than apocryphal. Uh, you know, Nicholas went to the Council of Nicaea. Okay, he was there with uh, all the other people opposing Arius, and the, the, the story goes is that at one point Nicholas, so frustrated with with Arius, walked up to him and slapped him across the face. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. Negative example. <laughs> okay, But he took the sin of Arius, who was a heretic in denying the deity of Jesus, he took it so seriously that he was moved to action. And yes, you should be moved to action by, by serious f- false doctrine, 
You should be moved to action by sin that is serious. You don't just kind of, oh, well, you know, they'll figure it out eventually. And so we need to admonish, which is another way that 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 word warning can be translated. We need to admonish the sins of both unbelievers and believers. Because we recognize there is a judgment. We are to especially warn believers. And as I mentioned, we, we all need to be admonished at times. None of us is exempt from this. None of us is personally perfect. And I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's dangerous. I think of a church in Florida where there was someone who was much older than me, highly respected in the congregation. I highly respected this person myself. They had always been an encouragement to me. And yet there was a part of their life where I saw them going down a dangerous road and I had to have those uncomfortable conversations with them. And I hated it because they didn't agree with what I saw. They thought there was nothing to be worried about. But I believed I had to warn them. I had to admonish them. And so this takes place in public ministry. There can be warnings that are for the congregation that are more general. But this also takes place in personal ministry, where you recognize an individual's struggle. And perhaps they don't realize they're struggling. And they need to know that they're in danger if they continue in the course that they're currently on. The purpose of this warning is not to condemn them, the purpose of this warning, this admonishing, is to promote their repentance. It's a saying, where you're going is going to destroy you, but God offers grace and repentance. And we need to make known that what the work of Christ so that they might be forgiven and restored. Sometimes we need to warn people. Sometimes it's uh, not just that. It's also, as he says, the second phrase, teaching everyone. So in line with the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We need to instruct people in biblical doctrine and in biblical obedience. We need to instruct them in what Christ has done and the implications of that. All of us need to be instructed on how to live upright and godly lives in this lifetime. There's no one here that's got it so together, you know, that they don't need to learn how to apply the work of the gospel in a particular area of their life. It might be how they use their tongue. It might be how they use their money or their, their, their wealth. Could be how they use their eyes. I don't know. Each of us is different. But all of us need to be instructed. And so there is, there is public instruction. The, the preaching of the pulpit, of Sunday school, of community groups, where there's general instruction about specific things. But there's also at times going to be individual instruction, personal ministry. And when that personal ministry comes, are you going to be open to it? 
If I have to, or one of the elders have to sit down with you and discuss a matter, are you going to be open or resistant? Paul wants them to be open. I want you to be open. Okay, again, Paul didn't say this just to the Colossians. We see him talking to Timothy, who co-wrote this letter. In 2 Timothy 4, he reminds him, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. So again, we see this emphasis on uh, a kind of a, a full-orbed ministry of the word. Okay? That includes those sorts of things. Now, let's go to the purpose quickly of why he wants to teach, why he wants to admonish these people. In order to present everyone, again, everyone, mature in Christ. See, he's doing his ministry with one eye on the judgment. That word present is the same word that he uses earlier about Jesus in uh, verse 22, about how, how Christ died upon the cross in order to present us holy and blameless. And I talked there that it was about our justification. Well, here he's got the same Event the presentation uh, before the thrones, but before the throne. But here it's it's really the emphasis on on sanctification, because it's not holy and blameless, but it's mature in Christ, whole in Christ. Am I moving around too much? I hope not. That was my flaw in seminary. I moved too much. Okay, um, there are many more than that. Trust me. Um, but they present them as mature. In Christ. And so this is about personal maturity, sanctification. And so my goal and the goal of the session is, is not this that you're on the rolls of this church. It's, it's not just that uh, you know you show up on Sunday morning. Our goal is your maturity in Christ. And there's some of you that you know we can see you're moving. It's happening. And there's some of you that we don't, maybe don't know you as well, and we don't know if it's happening. It may very well be. We just don't know you well enough. And that's one of the things we've been talking about as a session is how to know you well enough so that we can see that it's happening. Okay. Because Christ is the image of God, he is the supreme standard for our maturity. He's the measure. He's the standard of it all. It's not me. I'm not here to replicate little Steve Cavaleros or, in the ladies' cases, little Amy Cavaleros. That's not biblical ministry. It's replicating Christ. Because the fullness of God dwells in him, Jesus is sufficient to produce that Maturity, And so you see, it's not me producing that maturity. I'm a means, but ultimately it is Christ himself who is producing that. And we see that particularly, we said that phrase, in Christ, pointing again to the reality of our union with Christ. And that it is a vital union, meaning life flows out of Christ and into us. And so the maturity that people have is going to flow out of Christ and into them as they continue to trust in Him. 
as they continue to seek him for particular aspects of that maturity. As they recognize, I am so impatient. Where is my patience going to come from? It is going to come from Jesus as I am in union with him. Patience is important when you're in ministry. We've already seen that. We're going to see it again in a moment. So, well, you know, the the thing that, the, the virtue that I lack is going to come out of my union with Christ. He is going to, you know, just like the power of the sap goes from the vine to the branch and into the grape. That's the idea. It comes from our union with Christ. And so um, Christ is the purpose of ministry that we warn and teach people to be formed in Him. Thirdly, lastly, Christ is the supreme, sufficient means of ministry. In other words, how do we do all of this? And first off, we go back to the, the beginning of, this, of these two verses. Him we proclaim with all wisdom. That's part of the means. Wisdom is part of the means of how we do ministry. We teach and admonish according to the particular needs of the congregation and of the individuals in the congregation. I chose Colossians, for instance, not because I thought it was a cool book and I've never preached it, but I thought is what we as a congregation needed. Hopefully my choice was filled with wisdom. Okay, um, So we have to evaluate where people are, what they need, and, and give them the proper instruction for that particular context. Okay. I, I don't need to preach from the Song of Solomon to you all. Now, I might teach it in Sunday school to you adults, but I don't need to do that. I don't think that's such a pressing need for you as a congregation at this point in time. Paul says to the Thessalonians something very similar to this. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Oh, there's that patience thing again. But remember, look at this. You don't admonish the faint-hearted. You don't help the idle. You have to recognize the spiritual state, the condition of that person, and then appropriately respond to it. Now, you might be giggling at what I just did, but you know, sometimes the idle and the faint-hearted look alike. Because when you're faint-hearted, you're not doing much. You're overwhelmed. And so that person needs to be encouraged and strengthened, not chastised. So we need wisdom to recognize what's going on so that we can accurately and appropriately do this. And ministry is necessarily patient. It takes time to know. It takes time to nurture. It takes time to correct. 
I've sort of begun this dialogue with somebody. And boy, as I was interacting yesterday, it was like, I need wisdom. This person's really mad at God. I need to understand how best to reach that heart with the gospel. That's going to take time. It's going to take wisdom. Where does my wisdom come from? Where does the wisdom of the session, where's your wisdom supposed to come from? Christ, who is the wisdom of God. So again, we depend on Christ for wisdom. This is He provides it again through our union with Him. So we are to do this with all wisdom, but Paul also says that he shifts. Him we proclaim, all it was it was first person plural. Now all of a sudden Paul shifts to singular. I toil, he says. Not sure if it was a rhetorical advice or Timothy had left the room. Doesn't matter. He denotes here that he was becoming weary by working hard. Ministry was not a hobby. It was not a pastime. It was tiring. Paul worked hard. He clarifies this, struggling with all his energy. And so we see that ministry requires a great expenditure of energy. Sometimes it's physical energy. The elders know this. A lot of times they come from work and they go to long meetings <laughs> that are about ministry, how to care for you all, and then praying for you all. That's tiring. There's a, there's a physical energy that is exp- um, expended, but there's also emotional energy that is expended because you care for the people. You care about what they're going through. You, you care about them. So there's emotional energy that is spent. There's spiritual energy that is spent. Ministry can be exhausting. And so that idea of, of struggling, if you transliterate that, the Greek word into English, it's agonizing. Paul was agonizing with all Christ's energy. It's the word that is commonly used in terms of you know, the Greek games of the day. Running, wrestling. You know, when, when you're done, you're done. You know, I, I don't think when Nathan was done with the Tour de Tucson that Nathan kind of said, give me another 50. Right? You were done, right? <laughs> he was wiped out. And that's the sense. There are, there are Sunday mornings I go home. Uh, not Monday, it's afternoon at that point. After Sunday morning, I go home and I'm spent. It's not because this is physically demanding. I've stood up for far longer than I stand up in this worship service. It's spiritually and emotionally, um, I can't even think of the word, demanding. Okay? But it's not just the preaching or the, the sacraments, but also Paul will use this phrase again throughout this letter, not just for himself, but also for um, Epaphras, Prayer. Paul agonized in prayer for the Colossians and the Laodiceans, and so did Epaphras. 
I need to remember that one a bit more often. I need to agonize on behalf of you all more consistently. But we see that Paul is not struggling in his own strength, but he is relying on Christ, who is the power of God, as we saw a couple weeks ago when we talked about how um, Paul is praying that they have power. In other words, that they have Christ who gives them power. Jesus, who is the fullness of God, or in whom the fullness of God dwelt. Jesus, who is the, the image of God. He is the supreme measure and source of God's sufficient wisdom and power. Don't look to your Red Bull. Look to Jesus. You know? Um, and again, Paul is saying this out of the, the reality of weariness. Paul is not saying, I never get tired because uh, I got Jesus. He's weary, but it is Christ who continues to sustain him to fulfill the ministry that, that Jesus called him to. So don't mistakenly think that because you're doing ministry, you're never going to get tired, you're never going to get weary. It's just going to be all roses and happiness. And, and even in your struggle with sin, you're, you know, you're going to be weary. Don't think that's strange. Don't think it's unusual. You know, I think, Joan, do you get tired? <laughs> we don't think, oh, Joan's in ministry. She gets a special dispensation of the Holy Spirit so that she can go 12 hours a day, you know, translating those scriptures. And by, how come you haven't gotten them done yet? Because you can go 16 hours a day. Why do you even sleep? Dear lady, it's okay? No. We wear out. We depend on Him that we might continue. Anyway, and so you have all these authors, you have all of these publishers, you have these speakers and ministries that clamor for your attention to use their ministry model. And I'll say that that's part, one of the things I appreciate about Ligonier Ministries and Desiring God. It's not about a ministry model. They're presenting you Christ. Those are the ministries that we need. But many of these, uh, these models of ministry can be in conflict with the model that Paul points us to here, and that is because they aren't all about Jesus. Not all about him. He is our supreme and sufficient message. He is the means. He is the purpose of our ministry. It is all supposed to be about Jesus all the time. And when we make it about something else, we begin to lack the wisdom and the power that are necessary for biblical ministry. If you've gone past weary to burn out, that might be an indication that you're starting to do something you shouldn't be doing. And we, we lose the, goal, the proper goal when we deviate from always Christ. A church begins to die. But Christ offers us more than we can imagine. It's just not in a way that looks spectacular. It looks relatively ordinary. 
Let's pray. Father, I know that as pastors, sometimes we are tempted to look for the spectacular. And the people are no different. We sometimes look for spectacular results and spectacular looking ministries. And Father, redirect our hearts. Renewing our minds that we might look for biblical ministry where it's about Jesus. Understanding and explaining the fullness of Christ. Father, help us to stay on that road. I think we're on that road. Help us to stay there, to not be distracted, to forsake the siren calls that we might hear in our culture that would lead us astray, to be consistently calling your people to faithfulness in Christ. Help us to, con- to continually think of how it is we are to mature, help these people mature in Christ. Give us wisdom and power to do this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.